Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. You know, um, I want to start the show by uh, mentioning that uh, this is a, uh, a personally meaningful day for those of us who uh, work on Political Rewind. For the last week or so, I've mentioned uh, the number of anniversaries we've been marking in terms of COVID-19, the pandemic, um, whether it's the day that the school sh- schools in Fulton County first shut down the NBA uh shut down its season, your office said you had to work from home or the like. Um, On March 16th, 2020, Political Rewind uh, produced its first show remotely. Um, Our engineers came into my house just outside the city of Decatur and uh, built a little studio for me here. And uh, so for the entire year, I've been doing this show from uh, home and uh, all of our panelists, as those of you who are regular listeners know, have been coming to us by telephone. Nobody's been in the Political Rewind studio for a year now, which is a stunning thing to think about. But it also gives us an opportunity to look at where we stand with the pandemic today, <clears throat> excuse me, and to uh, uh, talk about how we're doing in this state, particularly in trying to stem, uh, to mitigate Uh, the ongoing pandemic. Are we making genuine progress? Do we still have setbacks that we should be concerned about? How's vaccination going? We're going to talk about all that and more today with our panel of experts. It's Tuesday, which means we start with uh, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Thanks for being here. Tamar, I assume you're kind of close to an anniversary as well, or maybe already passed it. Yeah, ours was, I believe, March 11th, so a little more than a year. And I do want to caveat what you said about nobody being in the Political Rewind studio. I managed to sneak over there twice, days where I guest hosted (laughs) a little earlier this year, but it was a very eerie place to be, a really skeleton crew of just an engineer or two, um, and really just an eerie place. Newsrooms are supposed to be a really buzzing environment, and so it's it's strange to to go in and, and see just how dead it is everywhere, even in our AJC offices. Yeah, oh, I'm sure that's right. And thank you for reminding me about your being in our studio. Samber Ms. Dawes has been in, excuse me, every day uh, directing our show. Amelia Brock, fortunately, is working out of home. So so most of us are still uh, keeping our distance from the studio. Uh, We're also really happy to have with us today Dr. Karen Landman, uh, Karen is a physician, uh, but she, of course, is also, a, as you've uh, heard on our show before, uh, reports on health and medicine as a freelance journalist. Karen, how are you holding up? And are we looking at any kind of, do you, do you mark this week or last week as any sort of anniversary? You know, um, the biggest anniversary for me is today, actually, March 16th, when schools shut down, uh, not because I have children, but because it seemed like that was the marker that um, everything was going to change and um, parents were going to start really having to stay home, even if, even, um, even if they didn't, you know, even if they, they were uh, essential in some cases. And, and yeah. 
Uh, yeah, it's, you know, it, it, I work from home. Um, I worked from home at the start of last year for the most part. And, um, and so it felt personally a little bit of a slower slide than it might have for those who spend most mm-hmm. of their time in an office. But, um, yeah, it feels like a pretty grim anniversary. Yeah, I think that's right. Dr. Harry Hyman is uh, back with us today. He, of course, a physician, professor in the School of Public Health at Georgia State University. Harry, how are you? And uh, how are you reflecting uh, personally on this past year? Any any date that jumps to your mind that matters most? Thanks for having me again, Bill. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, yeah, I think as, as, as Karen indicated, kind of uh, a lot of uh, reflections on uh, lost opportunities over the past year to, uh, as a country, as a state, take a take a different, more uh, proactive uh, direction in response to this pandemic. On a personal level, um, you know, I teach in the School of Public Health at Georgia State, and we left for uh, spring break uh, about this time last year with the expectation there was going to be an extended pause. I don't think anyone anticipated that uh, many of us wouldn't be doing in-person teaching uh, even even a year later. Uh, so uh, okay. it's been, uh, needless to say, a... Uh, uh, a powerful year. We are also joined uh, for the first time, and I'm glad to welcome him, by Dr. Roy Reese, psychologist, director of behavioral health at Acoma Consulting, Counseling and Consulting. Also, I, th- I think you're an adjunct professor at the Morehouse School of Medicine. Is that right, uh, Dr. Reese? It is, and, and thank you for having me uh, today. So what about you? How is, is are you... Is there one date that really, uh, you know, kind of fixed itself in your mind as an anniversary? Yeah, I, I think there's a series of dates. Um, it, it started with I was supposed to be taken and trained from Baltimore to New York for a meeting, and that got canceled, and I had to make a beeline home. And then uh, my girls were taken out of school, um, thinking initially that that was going to be a short-term um, uh, experience only for it to be a year later um, that they're still being homeschooled. And, and I think for our family more broadly, um, our son was to graduate or did graduate from college last year and his institution was, was talking about the reality that there wouldn't be an in-person, there likely wouldn't be an in-person graduation which um, you know, it made us sad because this was an accomplishment that he had worked very hard for. So yeah. Um, yeah. lo- lots of things happening. Um, I'm sorry that you've all experienced some difficult, like we all have, difficult times in the middle of this pandemic. Um, Mar, let's turn immediately as we kind of do a survey of what's going on in Georgia. I think the best starting point right now is to look at vaccines because, tomorrow, as we all know, yesterday was the first date that the vaccine pool was expanded exponentially. Uh, Governor Kemp uh, included people 55 years or older, dropping the age 10 years, but probably just as important, if not more significantly, added a long list of conditions that people of any age uh, might have that would um, entitle them to be vaccinated as well. 3.3 million new people is what the State Department of Public Health said was in that new pool. And um, 
as we start, let me just, um, Tamar, throw out a figure that we can use, all of us, in, in how we begin processing how things are going since the expansion. The, um, the CDC shows that Georgia has received, uh, as of yesterday, 3,500,135 doses of vaccine. 2,740,601 of them have actually found their way into the arms of Georgians. That's only a 78% uh, completion of the vaccine rate, and it keeps us pretty far down, if not last, in terms of vaccines being actually uh, uh, administered. So, you know, the question becomes um, whether expanding the pool is just going to create as many problems as it solves, at least initially. Yeah, I think right now, following along with my, co my colleagues' coverage in the AJC, it seems like there's sort of a, a tale of two Georgias right now, where in metro Atlanta, there's this real scramble if you're eligible to be able to even find an appointment or even get on the website and be able to book one and, and get the technology to work. Um, and then there, there's a different case when you go out to rural Georgia, where perhaps there's a little more of a hesitancy politically to, to get it. And it seems like it's, it's much easier um, to find these appointments. And I've started hearing of plenty of people who are, are willing from Metro Atlanta to drive an hour or two or three into rural Georgia to go to a Walmart or a Publix to be able to get that, that, uh, that vaccine. And I, I think it creates a, a lot of questions about equity. It's a conversation I think we've been having this, this entire year in terms of who's getting the virus. But now in terms of who's able to take four hours off of work to drive to rural Georgia to, to get that vaccine. Um, and I, I think until the state kind of figures out their situation in Metro Atlanta, uh, this is going to be the case for, for weeks to come. So, Karen, it isn't as if um, there, we might not have been able to anticipate a disparity between people in rural Georgia having access to or the desire to get the vaccine. And we'll talk about that, uh, the willingness of people to get vaccinated in a few minutes. We're going to look at a poll that shows some real differences among people about who wants it and who doesn't. But it's not as if they couldn't have anticipated this. Um, and, and, and the question becomes, why are we struggling so to put shots in arms across the state um, in the midst of a pandemic? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, Bill. And I don't have the answer to that. I will say, you know, um, a lot of a lot of us, a lot of Georgians follow the work of Amber Schmidtke, who's a, a former um, professor at the, I believe, in the med school at Mercer, um, now lives and works in Kansas, but still publishes a, a nearly daily report about uh, Georgia's um, sort of the dynamics of the pandemic in Georgia. And you know she does uh, she does quite a bit of reporting of her own, and um, it sounds like folks she's spoken with say that it's inefficiency, not supply, not unwillingness, but just sheer inefficiency. Um, and I don't know exactly what the what the nut of that is, but I will say you know stuff is coming down the pike. Um, you know the Johnson Johnson vaccine has not been rolled out yet in Georgia, and that is anticipated, I believe, to come in May. Um, and also, there is a, a mega site set to open next week, um, and I don't I don't have a ton of details about that. But that I think I wonder if some of this kind of stockpiling may be uh, some downstream effect of trying to plan for that and have availability for that. But 
you know, I think fundamentally the, the efficiency does not arise in a vacuum. It's not bad people doing work badly. It is an underfunded system being underfunded. And this is what happens when you don't fund an infrastructure for public health where you have clear lines of distribution, you know, plans for a cold chain, uh, a real uh, operationalized preparedness plan. And I hope this will provoke Georgia and Georgians to really prioritize funding a good public health program throughout the state in the future. Harry, the can... state would argue that, yeah, go ahead, Harry, you just go, go weigh in. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate uh, Karen's bringing up our, our lack of investment in public health infrastructure, which is a longstanding problem, which, which has, has obviously gotten much worse in the, in the context of, of a pandemic, but also tomorrow really highlighting the, the, the equity implications of what the current situation is and, and what we're not doing. And I think, unfortunately, if you look back to Georgia's vaccine plans, going back to the initial draft in October, um, we've never had a clear community-based strategy uh, for engaging with communities, for educating communities, for addressing vaccine hesitancy, and to ensuring that those communities that are being disproportionately impacted by the pandemic have equitable access to the vaccine. Um, you know, um, and that's been a, a continued problem with the uh, rollout. I mean, I think the, the response of jumping phases in the plan and the response of, of max, mass vaccination sites um, isn't really addressing the core problem. I mean, clearly, mass vaccination sites are part of uh, a strategy for getting vaccine out. But we also need a community-based strategy that recognizes that not everybody can get into their personal car and drive to a mass vaccination center, um, that, that, that we need a strategy focused on those communities. And, and we're talking about disproportionately low-income and black and brown communities that have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. And you know, all, all we have to do is, is, is look at studies done by the CDC that, that look at social vulnerability and risk for COVID so we know how to geographically target communities. And if we want an example of what that looks like, um, California is now earmarking 40% of their vaccines uh, to priority populations in low-income and communities of color um, as a way of ensuring that those communities uh, that are disproportionately impacted get the vaccine. And I think that's something that Georgia needs to be doing. Uh, we need to be matching resources to need it, and we're just not doing that. Roy Reese, jump in. Sure. So um, I think Karen and, and Harry frame the challenge. There's poor funding and then there's poor planning. And uh, the chicken or the egg, was it the planning and then the funding um, that informed the other? But one of the concerns that I have with the governor opening up access to the vaccine as broadly as he has is those most at risk, the 65-plus um, community, and, and, and as Harry points out, largely black and brown residents of our state, there's going to be a significant uptick in vaccinations with this opening of access. And I'm concerned that we lose sight of that most vulnerable population that will see, hey, our vaccination rates are going up, look at what we're doing, but we won't kind of take that more granular look at are we vaccinating those who are most at risk um, and who are most in need of the vaccine. Um, and, I, and I worry about um, us keeping focus um, in an effort to attend to the disparities 
um, both in terms of the experience of the virus, but also in, in helping reduce risk. Which, 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 if I can just chime in, also speaks to the importance of not looking at just a single number or two numbers in terms of judging how we're doing. I think so often it's kind of look, looking at the number of people that got tested. Uh, when we were looking at testing, now we're looking at how many people got vaccinated. I, I think we need to disaggregate data in a way that tells us not only how many people are being tested or how many people are being vaccinated, but, but who has access to the vaccine and who doesn't. And, and what does that look like relative to risk and relative to the communities we know that are being disproportionately impacted? Um, so, Tamar, CBS News just released a, a poll um, about um, uh, people's attitudes toward the vaccine. And again, you know, it's always hard to read numbers on the radio. Uh, so I won't go into the numbers in spe- with specificity. But uh, I will start with the top line, which is that uh, something like 55% um, of, of the people they talked to uh, said, uh, yes, when a vaccine becomes available, they absolutely will get it, or they've already had it. <clears throat> but 22% said no. And that's a large percentage of people, especially when herd immunity becomes increasingly important. And, tomorrow, of course, this won't surprise anybody, um, Republicans are far more skeptical about being vaccinated than Democrats and independents. And, and again, when you're talking about the need to, va- to vaccinate the vast majority of people, and I'll let the doctors talk about where we get to the point of herd immunity, but we don't have time for partisan differences on something like this tomorrow. Sure. And you look at the numbers needed to achieve herd immunity, and I've seen anywhere from about 75 to 90 percent of the population. Um, If we're sitting at 55 percent right now that's willing to take it, and then maybe you you add the category of people who say they'll maybe take it, that gets us to 77 percent, not you know, not a ton of margin for error, for error. And even if that entire group gets it, it may not be enough. So that's a little scary when you, you look at that. And it's interesting to hear Dr. Fauci talk. You know, he wants to get former President Trump to come in and talk to his supporters to, to get them to um, be more open to, to getting this vaccine. And, and it's been interesting to hear this debate about how much credit the Trump administration gets for kind of setting the, the course for, for this vaccine rollout. Um, but, the, but Trump, you know, apparently got his vaccine in, in his final days in office and didn't televise it, didn't really talk about it. And so, you know, he has, I believe in his speech at CPAC a week or two ago, urged his supporters to get inoculated. But I'm curious if we'll see more from him. Um, and we really haven't, uh, aside from some statements from his super PAC um, you know, kind of written statements since he's left office. So somebody's going to need to step up to help fill that void with Republicans. And I'm curious which voice that's going to be, because right now in Georgia, Brian Kemp doesn't exactly have the most currency with Republicans. Yeah, I think um, Tamar's point is well taken. Um, and, and, you know, luckily our current administration is aware that their voice is probably not going to be the most resonant with Republicans and with rural voters and, uh, or with rural, uh, rural people who, who I suppose I hope are, are usually voters as well. Um, but you know, what I, what I, what I hear from, um, I, I've written a bit about, um, uh, vaccine confidence in, um, communities of color and the folks who work with those communities and, and study in those communities, I think, 
have been saying and beating the drum now for months that it's, um, you know, the culture that underpins vaccine hesitancy um, is, is just as nuanced and just as strong in communities, outside communities, non-communities of color that have low vaccine confidence. These rural communities, Republican communities, they need as careful a study and as careful and nuanced an understanding of what's preventing them from taking up this vaccine and as nuanced an approach to addressing that um, and as community based an approach to addressing that as communities of color need. So I've seen um, a little coverage lately of clergy um, being engaged to, to reach those communities and other community leaders whose voices are, um, are most resonant with them. And it may be that not seeing those covered in the press is the best thing. It's better for us to perhaps uh, for those communities to have that outreach be on the download so it's not associated with uh, the Biden administration. I, I do want to jump in and then I want to get Roy and Harry back into the conversation uh, because uh, it is certainly true that President, uh, former President Trump has uh, done very little to talk, speak publicly about uh, people being vaccinated. He did do it at CPAC. I think it's also important to point out, however, that President Biden yesterday was asked about whether whether the former president could play a role. And and President Biden downplayed him. President Biden basically said, I think there are community leaders who have more impact. That may very well be true. But if partisanship is playing on both sides of this issue, if the Biden administration and in fact, in his speech to the country last week, fact checking on President Biden's insistence that it was his administration that essentially deserves sole responsibility for the broad, uh, widespread vaccine was simply not correct. So I think when we talk partisanship, it's important we say, unfortunately, it's happening on both sides of the aisle at this point. Roy, do you want to jump in? Yeah, and, and, and just briefly, I, I think it's important to, to highlight that the virus is not partisan. Um, it, 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 it does not care whether you're Democratic or, or Republican or, or an independent. And so I think that the messaging um, is, has to be that, because I think to the extent that we, we give attention to some of these partisan issues, we allow ourselves to get distracted. And if we're going to allow the science to drive uh, what needs to happen here, and we know from a public health perspective that it does not discriminate, even though it disproportionately impacts um, some communities because of prior risk, and I think that's the piece that we we I, that I would want to be focused on, that this is not a partisan issue, that it's a health issue, and this virus has has connected the dots between our our shared humanity. I think I, I think that I think that's a great point, Roy. Um, I, I think the other uh, points I'd like to make are, um, you know, I, I think we we create the conditions for people to have hesitancy. Um, I mean, there is well-grounded uh, mistrust in black and brown communities based on their experience with government and with the healthcare system. Um, I think we have uh, uh, political uh, undermining of science. Uh, and then we wonder why people are, are hesitant. I, I think we've created those conditions. And I think we have the obligation uh, to meet communities where we are and to provide accurate and appropriate uh, information. I think President Biden has it right. When, when he talks about leaning into uh, community leaders and trusted messengers in communities, we in public health know how to do that. Again, we, we need to aggressively invest in the resources needed to put together that messaging, to engage in communities and to meet them what they are. 
Um, I think if you look internationally, um, uh, you're seeing that as more people get vaccinated, um, the level of hesitancy and distrust goes down. Um, I think Israel is an is is example of that, uh, and there are others, and I think we're seeing that in the U.S. as well. As, as people see their friends, neighbors, and colleagues get immunized and nothing bad happens, they realize that maybe it's not so bad and, and maybe it's safer than they thought. Jamar, before we get to a break, jump in. Yeah, I wanted a couple more things I wanted to pull out from that CBS, uh, CBS News poll because there, there's a lot of great stuff in there. But first of all, it does show kind of what Harry mentioned. Overall, it seems that as the rollout continues, there are more and more people who are willing to take the vaccine who might have been hesitant before. And it seems to be that, that some of the, the rising um, willingness is coming from a lot of those black and brown communities that initially had been really hesitant. And it, it's looking overall that... that um, you know, Hispanics and African-Americans are now about just as likely as white people to, to want to get vaccines once it becomes available to them. But when you, you scroll down to see the reasons a person wouldn't get a coronavirus vaccine, um, you know, that's where it becomes really illuminating. About 58 percent said it's still too untested. We'll wait and see. Others said they were worried about the side effects, but 37% said they don't trust the government, and another 28% said they don't trust the people who make the vaccines. And I think those are the two areas where it, it may be the hardest to build trust. Yeah, I, I'm glad you uh, brought those out because I think it's important. I thought, in fact, it was incredibly important that at least CBS's poll finds that uh, African Americans and Hispanics are as willing, and in a couple of cases, more willing than even whites to get the vaccine when it's available to them. If that's the case, that is a culture shift that uh, uh, suggests the pandemic has made a big impact on the lives of people who may have been initially skeptical. we got to get to our first break of the show. We'll be back with a lot more after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. The AJC's Tamar Hallerman and I are the only ones on this panel today that don't have doctor, doctor in front of our names. But I'm not feeling terribly inadequate so far, Tamar. But this is a I'm smart feeling panel. horribly undereducated. <laughs> <laughs> We're joined also by Dr. Harry Hyman, Dr. Roy Reese, and Dr. Karen uh, Landman. Um, Harry, let me start with you, if I might. Uh, it, it, here we are, a year plus in. Uh, let me just read you the figures for Georgia as we saw them come out yesterday. We've now lost more than 18,000 uh, Georgians to COVID, 18,262 deaths. We've had 41 deaths in just the last week. There are 1,400 people who continue to be hospitalized, and um, we're over a million people who have contracted COVID-19 in the state. Harry, um, the, the broadest and most general question, I think, to ask is, how much better off are we? We clearly, from the data, see that we're doing better. But 
in a larger sense, as we try to stem the pandemic, how much better off are we in Georgia today than we were, say, six months ago? Well, I, I, I think overall we're in a much better place today than we were, let's not talk six months ago, but talk just a few months ago when we were at uh, the, the, the peak of the pandemic in terms of cases. Uh, we were seeing rising death, rate, death rates, and we had uh, two to three times as many people in the hospital on any given day uh, with many hospital systems across the, the state overwhelmed. So I think the rate of fall, not only in Georgia, but nationally in, in new cases, in hospitalizations, and now are, are seeing uh, a, a reduction in death rate is a, is a dramatic improvement. But if, if we look back um, a year ago, to the to the the spring peak um, that that we saw then, we're actually uh, looking at similar numbers now to the spring peak, um, and um, we're 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 close to where we were uh, when things plateaued after the summer peak. Um, so we're plateauing uh, at this point, or we're at this point at, at a level that is, that is still unacceptably high. I mean, you mentioned 1,400 people uh, in the hospital on an average day. Uh, we're still seeing 40 to 50 people in Georgia dying every day. Um, so while um, relieved that things are much better, we're, we're still in a great place. And people need to remind themselves of that um, as, we, as we plan forward. I think that there's a lot of things to be excited about in terms of vaccine rollout with all of its problems. Um, but, but, but I think you know, we're still in a, in a dangerous space, uh, and we still really need – um, state leadership, not only on the vaccine front, but also to, to manage COVID and to remind people that this isn't a time to drop our guards. This isn't a time to roll back um, some, some of the um, uh, laws and, and policies we have in place to protect people and communities. Um, Karen, I think that, that Harry just refined my question in a way I should have, which is to say, yes, the numbers don't look as bad as they have in the past in the state. But in, the term, in terms of long-term mitigation of this disease, in terms of getting vaccines, shots in arms, in terms of the fact that more and more people seem to be out socializing and, um, and, and people seem to really be experiencing uh, pandemic fatigue more than ever, are we in better shape in terms of actually mitigating the disease, putting it behind us once and for all? I think it's much too early to say that. Uh, and the reason is that um, these viral variants that are emerging um, are, I think we're starting to see that they have real public health significance, that um, there is a significant chance that with unmitigated spread, we're going to have um, increased numbers of viruses circulating that don't respond as well to vaccines where um, you know, early treatment with monoclonal antibody is not as effective. There's, you know, there actually, there's a part of California where they've actually changed the recommendation about uh, treating people with you know, one of these variants with a monoclonal antibody because of concern that it doesn't work. Um, and I think if we, do, if we open up too quickly, which I think uh, most folks in public health would say we are, we're gonna have more unmitigated spread of these viral variants and simply see resurgence of the virus as though we had never uh, vaccinated against it at all. I think that's the worst case scenario. It's certainly not confirmed that that's going to happen. But um, 
I think that is that's probably um, what's keeping me from feeling like we are, um, you know, we're on the right path right now. Tamar, um, I'm I'm wondering as you track through either your reporting or uh, looking at your colleagues, uh, uh, what CDC and other public health uh, officials are telling us about what we can and cannot do after we're vaccinated. We still don't know particularly whether um, we're, uh, uh, whether we can still shed virus when we're vaccinated. It strikes me there's still a lot of confusion among uh, uh, people out there about all of this. Absolutely. And at the same time, there's such a fatigue with this pandemic after a year of, um, you know, just terrifying things happening all around people trying to be good and socially distance and do all these things. I think you get a little bit of optimism when you hear about these vaccines. And I, I think the tendency is to say, oh, it's solved. You know, you can loosen up. It's super, you know, why not? It'll be fine. And and I think there's that kind of push and pull. And, and you're seeing it now even with um, liberal-led states that are that are starting to open up in California. Um, you're starting to see uh, protections being rolled back. And so I think people are just tired. And, and you're going to start to see that now, especially as more and more people get vaccines. They're going to think life can resume back to normal. Uh, Harry, I want to give you a last quick word on this, but then I'd really want to turn to uh, Roy Reese and talk about the mental health impact that we are dealing with in terms of the uh, pandemic. But Harry, finish up on, on this part of the show. I, I- I just want to say that, that overall, I'm feeling very optimistic, but, but I have to say cautiously optimistic because it, we have to both lean into appropriate rollout of vaccinations. At the same time, we have to message to people that they have to hold on a little bit longer uh, in terms of being as strict as possible around wearing masks and socially, distance, socially distancing, avoiding high-risk indoor settings, the things you've been doing all along, and also reminding them that even though you are yourself um, significantly protected after you get the vaccine, um, based on what we know, you still can potentially spread it to others, and, and you still need to continue being cautious in public places. So I think it's a, it's a nuanced message that gets very challenging to to, to, to share with people. Roy Reese, um, let's talk about your area of expertise as a psychologist. Um, I assume that it's a fair statement, and you'll tell me if I'm wrong, that we may be uh, heading toward uh, a mitigation in a major way of the COVID itself, but that the mental health impact of the past year in so many areas will stay with us far longer than the coronavirus will. Is that a safe uh, statement? I, I think it is indeed. I mean, mental health and mental illness um, are two subjects that get short shrift in our society. And, and, and so um, we did not, there were mental health disparities affecting uh, the public prior to the pandemic that have only become exacerbated by the pandemic. And so as we look at the incidence of anxiety, depression, completed suicide, increases in risk behaviors, increases in, in incidence of domestic violence, child maltreatment, et cetera, that um, certainly if, if this has been a year, I, I think that as we look for people, look to support people as they readjust back into interacting with people, going back to school, going back to work, um, there will be challenges with that. But I think even I, I'm concerned about how people are doing now. I mean, the question is, is are we okay? 
And I'm not sure how you can be okay when you're experiencing, actively experiencing, it's not, it's not past tense, it's present tense, when you're actively experiencing a, a traumatic event, the likes of which none of us have ever seen. So um, I think the implications are, are going to be far-reaching for a long time. And, and Heron, Harry and Karen made the, the statement or comments earlier about how we need to fund uh, the public health apparatus and we need to plan for these pieces. I, I think there's a real opportunity here to, 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 to focus some directed attention um, to the lack of adequate pro, uh, providers, um, facilities, et cetera, to serve this need and, and to begin to respond um, and, and, and what, what we can anticipate as people go back to work and school and force. Let me ask you one other question about that, because we know, that, as you say, an increase in domestic violence and suicide um, uh, and in, in just the anxieties that we know people are experiencing. The very anxiety of trying to find a vaccine um, is, is uh, contributing to the problem, I assume. Um, but uh, moving beyond that, what, is it, what do you see as the impact on children who have been kept out of their schools for, in many cases, for almost a year away from their friends? Are we going to have really significant issues to deal with with young people in our society? Well, I think we're going to have significant issues with young people and, and the adults who interact with those young people. If we say that schools would have, are the primary socialization agent um, institution for young people in this country, which they, they have been, and that that's been taken away from young people, some of the things that we're starting to see um, happening in homes in terms of acting out behaviors, in terms of um, the anxiety and depression that I referenced before, um, I would expect to continue. Like some, The school will help abate some of those kinds of things. But one of the things that we have to recognize is that teachers are not mental health professionals and that they will see some things that are occurring um, that they will not necessarily be prepared to, to respond to. The schools don't necessarily have the resources to support that um, because of the economic impacts of the pandemic. Some of the extracurricular activities that young people heretofore were involved in, that, that those resources may not be as easily accessible because families may not be able to afford them. And so I think that we have to think about how we're going to respond to supporting um, young people and also really important supporting um, their adult caregivers. I, I, I think, um, you know, as, I, as I, I have a better appreciation, for example, for what school teachers um, manage, given that my, my two daughters have been doing homeschooling <laughs> uh, for the last year. And I will be advocating that they get pay raises immediately. Um, <laughs> but having said that, uh, it, 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 you know, what teachers will have to manage as, as these kids return to school um, is, is significant. And, and, and so, you know, the question we should ask ourselves is, can we recognize uh, behavioral or mental health impairments when we see it? I think too often the answer to that question is no. Um, do we know how to access um, help um, when it's indicated? And too often the answer to that is, is no as well. And, and then the last part of that is, are there adequate resources to respond to the need? And based on the fact that, that many of my colleagues have waiting lists that are now months long, the answer to that is no. And so if we don't want, and I, I had a colleague say this on a, on a program I did last year, he said the second wave of the pandemic will be the mental health pandemic. And if we, we wanna mitigate that, we need to begin acting now in those spaces. Karen, um, I think Royce said something that's really um, worth thinking about. Um, we're going to start transitioning back to more normal lives. We're going to start going back to our offices. Children are going to be going 
uh, back to school. Um, and that's going to present challenges uh, in and of itself for us readjusting to what our old lives were like. Yeah, I think a lot of us fear that when we start actually interacting with people uh, at the level that we did before, that we're going to do a lot of really uh, weird and awkward things. And I think that that's a possibility. But I think <laughs> one of the things that this is this has deprived us of is um, that that sense of community around suffering and um, being able to be around each other and talk and cry and hug with each other, I think um, is missing and, and, and will help um, with some of the processing. I am hearing about so much PTSD and, and um, so much, um, just so much mental and emotional suffering right now among um, people who have survived COVID, among their caregivers, among healthcare workers. And um, that, you know, we, we really are craving, I think that community to experience and share that in. Tomorrow. One thing I'm curious to see is kind of longer term, how this really marks um, kind of our generation. In the same way I think about my grandparents who grew up in the Depression and how for their entire lives it, it kind of marked them. Are we going to be really weird when it comes to touch? Are we not going to want to shake people's hands or, or give people a hug? Or alternately, are we going to become, when we're able to, very kind of touchy-feely? I, I, I think we'll all be hoarding toilet paper and Clorox wipes for the rest of our lives. But um, I'm wondering if Dr. Reese has any thoughts on, on kind of the, the truly long-term, you know, for, for decades to come, if you have any, any theories on, on what this might do to all of us. Sure. So, I, so that's, that's, that's the right question, but a challenging question, because we can't know what we don't know, because we've not been through this before. And, and, and so one of the questions that yours begs is, what do we want our new normal to be, right? Um, and, and so there's an opportunity to be intentional about how we re-engage, how we normalize touch, um, how we talk about how to do that safely in, in ways that continue to kind of reduce risk requiring um, the virus, because we're not talking about eradicating the virus, right? Um, the, the, the virus will continue to exist in one form or another. But I think that this goes back to some of the comments that Harry made earlier about how we use what we know about community engagement and community-based approaches to promoting public health to say, let's let's talk about what we're not talking about um, and let's talk about um, how we re-engage with each other in ways that promote our well-being and, and safety. And so that's the, that's the initial piece. And I think the last piece I would want to leave, leave that with is let's pay attention. Let's not take our eyes off of this as we begin to reacclimate. Let's look at it a month from now, six months from now, a year from now, because frankly, I think it's a year from now where we may see the most robust impacts of what the pandemic has meant for behavioral mental health. Harry, let me give you the final word before we have to take another break. Yeah, I just, I just like to, I guess, reemphasize the fact that the same communities that experience social, economic, and environmental disadvantage that have been disproportionately impacted by COVID are also the same communities at greatest risk for the mental health uh, implications of this pandemic. Um, and I think Roy has it exactly right. Um, we, we, we need to aggressively invest in a community-based mental health infrastructure. Uh, we need to ramp up access to providers. Georgia has been a national leader 
in peer support uh, and peer counselors. Now is the time to double down on that strategy. Um, and I think Tamar's point about um, you know, how this generation will be marked, um, we, we know the impact of adverse childhood experiences, the, the collective trauma that children of all ages have been experiencing has been profound, and it's something that we need to begin addressing now and into the future. All right. We got to take our final break of the show. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back. Uh, We're getting a lot of responses from uh, you out there to the show. And I wanted to point out, if you're not following us on social media, uh, uh, and if you want to, uh, you can always uh, follow us on Twitter at PoliticsGPB. I would love to have you follow me personally at Nigut, N-I-G-U-T-B, because uh, uh, we always value your comments. And many of you uh, still listen to the show on our Facebook page and uh, leave your comments there. So please continue uh, to do that. Um, we're talking today to Tamar Hallerman, to Dr. Harry Hyman, Dr. Roy Reese and Karen Landman, and we're really coming down to the end of the show. I have a very quick question. I want to. I, I, this is um, coming out of nowhere. I want tomorrow. Let me start with you. Have you, as we go, go into this year of uh, dealing with a pandemic, have you learned a lot about yourself in this year? Is there one thing that you have? I've learned to stop moving around so much. I'll start with me. I don't go out as much. I don't feel a need to run to the store. I'm happy, you know, being quiet with myself. What have you learned? Something similar like that, although I don't know if I would still say I'm happy being with myself, but kind of learning how to be still. I've, I've always been an extrovert. I've always overplanned my life and always running from one thing to another. <laughs> and living alone and being single during a pandemic has taught me how to learn how to appreciate being still, even if I don't love it. Harry Hyman, you got a very quick uh, uh, insight for us? Uh, For me, it's been more about uh, the importance of family. Yeah, Yeah, I understand that. Roy? Yeah, actually, I I would ditto what Harry just said. I, 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 I appreciate how I value my my family differently and, and what I don't take for granted now. Karen, what about you? Is there have you, what have you learned about yourself in this year? I have learned that a long walk solves a lot of problems, and that <laughs> more contact with family is actually better than less. <laughs> Karen Land, Karen Landman, uh, Dr. Harry Hyman, Dr. Roy Reese, Tamar Hellerman, thank you for uh, being with us for Political Rewind today. Um, I'm going to take a couple of minutes. As, as I said at the start of the show, uh, for me, especially this day, March 16th, is an important one because it's been a year that we've now been uh, doing this show, me from a uh, bedroom converted into a studio at my house. And uh, Amelia Brock has been working out of her house. Sam Burmas Dawes and Jesse Neiswanger continue to work in the studio because they have to be there for the show. But I've been trying to think about what way to mark, for me, this personal anniversary. And and it occurred to me that a perfect way to do it would be to play a song from the Broadway musical Rent. 
Remember, which, by the way, celebrated the 25th anniversary of its first performance at the New York Theater Workshop. It went on to run for 12 years on Broadway and become one of the most important musicals of all time. And Rent was about the AIDS epidemic and people struggling through that. And there's a song in the show, 525,600 Minutes, which in fact, is the number of minutes in a year, and it's a song about how people spent a year with AIDS. 525,600 minutes. How do you measure measure a year? In daylights, in sunsets, in midnights, in cups of coffee, in inches, in miles, in laughter, in strife, in truths that she learned or in times that he cried, in bridges he burned or the way that she died. We've lost, coincidentally, more than 525,000 Americans to COVID. And so, although it's coincidental, it seems like the right way to end our show today, one year into the pandemic. Thanks for being with us. Until tomorrow, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask. Here's 525,600 minutes.